This week on the nonprofit news feed, we're talking about a big, big announcement coming out of the Biden administration regarding marijuana. And we have other news as well. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? Well, my voice is a little rougher than it normally uh, will carry on. Also, uh, very happy. You'll notice that we finally got RIP Medical Debt on. Uh, I enjoyed that podcast quite a bit and I learned, uh, I learned quite a bit from how they are actually operating, but that all came from us, like seeing it on a newsfeed and saying, oh, what's their deal? No, I love that. And I think that's partly why we enjoy this so much. We get to follow the news, learn about the industry ourselves, um, and, and engage with it, uh, about industry organizations and topics. I know that we care deeply about and related to that, our first story we wanted to highlight is big news last week for criminal justice reform advocates. The Biden administration has announced pardons for simple marijuana charges um, or federal simple marijuana possession charges, um, as well as instructed the Attorney General and Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra to start process of reviewing marijuana's status under federal law aka rescheduling or descheduling marijuana. So we kind of have these two announcements that are pretty significant, right? Because the legacy of marijuana stems from the Nixon administration's war on drugs, which was a concerted, deliberate political effort to weaponize uh, essentially drug enforcement um, to the detriment of Black black and brown folks in America. Um, and that legacy still bears out. And be, we see that in the data in which um, white users of marijuana are just as likely to use uh, cannabis as black and brown Americans. However, incarceration and charges against black and brown Americans are disproportionately high. So this has a racial justice component to it. This has a criminal justice reform component to it and a big win for the, the Biden administration and something that has been, um, I think, uh, uh, pretty uh, well received by, by the, the general public. Um, some of the, the articles that we link to here um, quote nonprofits as saying that there's still a lot of work to be done, especially on the state level, right? You now have a, a hodgepodge of laws that crisscross and contradict one another. So this is not like the end all be all. In fact, some organizations criticize the announcement for being quite narrow. Um, but uh, again, I think all progress should be celebrated. So a big one we wanted to highlight. Yeah, uh, I think there's that gap between what is said at an administration level and then what happens on the ground of actually making sure, you know, records are expunged and that folks that were, you know, incarcerated at unfair rates are, uh, you know, sort of made aware of what this actually means on the ground. And then you have, yeah, confusion on a state-by-state basis. What's interesting is there was some, you know, predictable, annoying chatter partisan-wise, but a Gallup survey uh, from, well, I guess a year ago showed that 68 Almost 70% of Americans support the legalizing of marijuana, including 50% of Republican respondents. You know, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many things that both the left and the right would pull that high on. 
the sky is without, you know, some sort of question of where, where facts lie. So uh, it seemed like a good step. I felt like there could have been even more push through uh, Congress on this front to finally get maybe more states in, in line with what a fair marijuana policy looks like. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the right take. Um, for sure. I think the cynical may say that the, this should have come sooner and that the timing approximately four weeks out from the elections was intentional, but, uh, <laughs> you claim that wasn't an accident <laughs> getting around to it. I'll get around. Yeah. You know, I'll get around to it, you know, right when it, when it, when it matters. Um, no, the, it's all fair criticisms, but again, I think, um, will definitely help people. And, uh, I think to your point, uh, gets the ball rolling at least and, and recenters the conversation, um, which, uh, to the credit of, of advocates, um, you know, Joe Biden himself has really been persuaded. Um, this is not a position he's held his whole life, certainly, and not one the Democrat, Democratic Party itself would openly endorse not that long ago. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's a, a number of quotes war on drugs wise where statements to the effect that like, yeah, you know, he's just, you're, you know, he has evolved that opinion. And this is one, you know, where public policy has moved to match public sentiment. Uh, sometimes one leads the other, but more often we see it, I believe, in this direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. I'll take us into our next story. And we haven't talked about Ukraine in a while, um, but we did want to center, uh, center this piece from Reuters in which the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, it is the United Nations leading refugee agency, the chief of UNHCR has warned of severe cuts to programming without immediate new funding. So it's quite sad that the world continues to set records when it comes to refugees and displaced people. Um, there are now more than an estimated 100 million people who are currently forcibly displaced around the world. Um, along crises in Afghanistan, the flooding in Pakistan, violence in Cameroon, and of course, on the European continent with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The UNHCR's uh, working budget has ballooned to a record of almost $11 billion. Um, and the commissioner basically warns that uh, without an additional $700 million in funding, um, particularly for underfunded operations, you'll have to make cuts. Um, unfortunately, it seems that those cuts would come from the Horn of Africa and the Middle East, um, including Yemen and Ethiopia, in which there are dire humanitarian crises there. Um, yeah, I, I, this is just, oh, we need, I think we need to be ramping up, not ramping down, but wanted to center this, this kind of warning for the world um, that we are not out of this crisis, even though it ebbs and flows in the main news flow, especially on a macro level when it comes to big macro topics like global hunger and global refugee crises. And winter will be worse for vulnerable people, um, even middle-class Europeans who may struggle to pay electricity bills, but of course, uh, refugees and people forced to flee uh, most especially. Um, so something we wanted to keep an eye on. Yeah. Uh, here's my take that if the U.S. is going to be sending billions in guns 
we should also consider the true cost of a proxy war. It's not just, hey, here are some howitzers. It truly is saying we understand that by adding literal fuel to, to this fire and this conflict, regardless of like, you know, the unjustified attack on, on a sovereign nation aside, but it's you are going to be uh, fueling uh, prolonged wars. Uh, the true cost clearly um, is included and not limited to uh, refugees, refugee support. And the I'd say the sort of alarm bells there of saying like we're, bad things are going to have to be cut, things that we have to, uh, from the largest UN refugee, like operation should be a bellwether there. And it hasn't even gotten bad to your point of uh, when winter actually hits Europe with gas shortage and pieces like that. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot of these types of programs that are going to get forgotten, overlooked. Absolutely, George. And and to your point, unfortunately, there's a there's a political component of this, right? The UN is a political body um, in a way that very few other political parties are. It's essentially every country. Um, and the U.S. is the agency's biggest donor. But even then, that funding is beholden to Congress, right? So they're unfortunately, they're, like that is a component. Yeah, I just wanted to center this because the UN is not more than the Security Council, right? Which is highly ineffective in part because Russia is a permanent member. Um, but yeah, something, something to, to think about. Um, yeah, let's get them the support they need. All right, I'll take us into our next story. And this one comes from the Harvard Business Review. And it's really interesting. It talks about uh, basically what happens now from a foundation ownership perspective for Patagonia. So um, as George very eloquently walked through during my absence uh, two weeks ago, Patagonia. Um, and we really, I think this was a really interesting article. I encourage readers uh, listeners, rather, to read this article. Apparently, uh, this kind of system in which you have a nonprofit foundation wholly owning up. I encourage our listeners to read this article. It's actually quite interesting in that you have a nonprofit organization now wholly owning a for profit company, which is quite unusual in the US, but according to this article, actually quite frequent. Um, in other countries, including Denmark and some Scandinavian countries. And it talks about um, not only does it increase social impact, but uh, the nonprofit ownership component actually seems to stabilize the companies, even from a market perspective, which is really interesting if you as management, nonprofit management nerd. Um, but yeah, kind of a, a interesting setup. And I think I, I, I would be willing to bet we see more of this moving into the United States as we have more conversations about corporate social responsibility. And hopefully we see more of those companies actually walking the walk on this. Yeah, there was a, a quote in here that was interesting because I mentioned about B Corps, how, you know, we at Whole Whale are uh, B Corp and are very carefully vetted. But in this, they, they dive in and the quote on this is that, out of thousands of companies uh, accorded the B Corp, the Benefit Corporation certification, only four have managed to go public. I'll say that again. Only four have managed to go public, one of which surrendered its status shortly after being listed in order to become more profit-oriented. So I take away from this is that 
you know, it seems to be more of uh, standard or accepted and done business practice in, in Europe. And they point to some of these uh, handling of shareholder foundations. And maybe that is like the way to go. You're just like able to, to grow, find your market niche rather than starting as a B Corp and then trying to move into the public market. Um, so you get big and then turn back to nonprofit as opposed to try to grow up as um, a benefit corporation. However, Patagonia was certainly a B Corp. So, you know, that, that would go in, in the face of that potentially. Yeah, George, that was a really interesting point in that article. It talked about, I think, the tension between objective social impact versus profit, particularly for companies entering the market. But the one benefit of being wholly owned by a nonprofit is that even if you are a market-traded company and your objective is profit, if profit goes up, the nonprofit stands to benefit. So those two kind of competing objectives are no longer competing um, because the nonprofit benefits in the form of revenue and donations and potential future social impact. Uh, so kind of a cool, cool model to think about. I think what other company might eventually do that and be positioned that way. I mean, I feel like you have to have that company that has made its, made its entire reputation about giving back and not just in like marketing terms, but in the, from the bottom up, maybe it says something in my mind is drawing a blank. <laughs> maybe it does. It mentions here though, Carlsberg, um, as one of those, uh, fully foundation owned companies, George, I know you're a beer guy. I didn't know that I'm a Carlsberg fan. I didn't know they were a nonprofit. Do they make a gluten-free? Do they make a gluten-free beer? I did happen to have one or two Carlsbergs back in the day, but. Maybe we should question them. Social impact. <laughs> I'm not sure how, how that'll be received. Uh, but yeah, there are, there are more for sure. And the way they do business. Absolutely. All right. I'll take this into our next story. And this one comes from Pew Research Center. And it was really interesting and not necessarily nonprofit oriented, but we want to talk about interesting surveys. So Pew conducted this survey um, of Black Americans and found that nearly four in 10 Black American adults say that Black Lives Matter has done the most to help Black people in recent years. Um, so that's 40%, um, four in 10, uh, compared to significantly smaller percentages for um, organizations like the NAACP, Black churches or other religious organizations, the Congressional Black Caucus, and the National Urban League. Um, I will call out with two asterisks that the survey question did not specify whether Black Lives Matter was the name of an organization or a broader movement. Um, and this survey was also conducted before some of the controversies with financial management within the Black Lives Matter organization itself. That being said, it would seem to be that Black Americans um, put more emphasis on the impact that Black Lives Matter, a fairly decentralized movement, um, has had on their lives compared to some of the more institutional pillars of where we see change coming from, whether that's the NAACP, the National Urban League, and other organizations and caucuses. And I think that's a, an interesting thing to pick up on. 
Yeah. Unfortunately, like that, the detail there about whether or not it's Black Lives Matter, the movement or the organization, uh, kind of skews this, uh, I think a bit in terms of how much to really take away from it. Um, clearly in that case, the way that was structured, it, it is both. So the other way to read this is that, uh, 61% point to something other than Black Lives Matter as a movement and or organization. Uh, if I were to just sort of flip it on its head, um, there are organizations that are actually on the long tail actually add up to more than half, well, more than half for what Black Lives Matter uh, achieved in terms of a movement. And, you know, I would park the, the organization, which, which is a, I'd say a smaller part of, of that movement from kind of like what we looked at rippling across the, uh, the overall landscape of social impact and corporations, which is also something that is, is always interesting to me is that, you know, I'd say large groups of people that are decentralized, uh, are good at rallying around emotion in moments. But if I wanted to build, uh, half a mile long suspension bridge, I wouldn't have a large group of decentralized people building it. I think there are moments where you need things sort of torn down and then there are others where you need things built up, but I'm pretty sure that you need a lot more building to happen. So uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that that's sort of on that 61% side that there are organizations that have hoping, hopefully all had the uh, rising tide effect of an open social conscious conversation uh, about black and brown people in America. Yeah, George, I appreciate that nuanced analysis and, and kind of bringing that perspective in. Interesting, interesting trends to, to think about. Um, always love the stuff Pew Research puts out. Um, yeah, I love, I mean, what Pew does is just so important because otherwise I feel it as though we're just, you know, sometimes shouting is based on small amounts of data. Um, so even with what I'd say is a flawed survey, I am, I see things and I can at least look at, I think they're great. Yeah. 501c3. Look at that. Nonprofit. How about a feel good story, George? Yeah. What do you got? What do you got? This one comes from NECN.com. Uh, a story of an organization, um, helping uh, folks in their community, particularly those wheelchair bound, um, access the fun of Halloween. So this, uh, nonprofit in Salem, um, helped this little girl like dress up with, uh, like a real, like decked out wheelchair. Um, and this family like always goes hard on Halloween and I love it. Um, it's a group known as magic wheelchair. Um, and and helps and helps people access Halloween. Like I don't know. Yeah, we link to it in the <laughs> in the in the show notes. It's more watching the the video, but um, really cool. And I think can can make a big difference. And uh, yeah, Halloween's fun. I love that everyone gets to participate. Yeah, magicwheelchair.org uh, is the is the nonprofit on this front, and they've just got you know some amazing work that they're doing, but it's so clear. So, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, the, I think this could be almost the, the program 
part of it, a larger organization that provides accessibility. But when you've got the ability to be so focused in storytelling and what you do, there's a real uh, ability to, I think, you know, have an effective program that, that we see right here. So maybe it gives you some ideas because certainly Halloween's coming up. Yeah. George, I'm on their website right now. These pictures are insane. Like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't stop. <laughs> Garden, Flash, you got monster trucks. This one has a dinosaur. This one has a raptor pulling it like a chariot. Like, I think that for me, that's like the, that's hilarious. That's amazing. This is next level. Next level. All right. Thanks, All right. George. Thanks, Nick. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com slash university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 